preached a sermon in his church in Massachusetts, and later he preached again that same year in Connecticut. And historians agree this is probably the most famous sermon in American history. And um, it has had a lasting impact on the American psyche when it comes to what we think God is like. This is before our country was even founded. This sermon was preached. It influenced the founders of our country, and it's had rippling effects ever since. Um, it had such a profound influence that it was printed into a booklet and widely distributed, and the name of his message was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Here's an excerpt. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. He's dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing but to be cast into the fire. His pure eyes have to bear your sight. You're 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel ever did their prince. And yet has nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire at this very moment. Man, that's, uh, that's intense, right? That's not what we're talking about today when we talk about God is slow to anger as we talk about these characteristics of God over the next few weeks. But before you think that this old sermon has no impact today, that nobody ever reads it or thinks about it anymore, and that its impact has long since faded, consider this. Before Darby dated me, she dated a guy who he said this was his favorite sermon, and he made her listen to it as he read the entire thing, which of course prompted her to break up with him because she was bored out of her mind, which worked out for me because then she married me. Um, there are still people who diligently hold to this view of God. He's wrathful, he's angry, he's holding you like an insect over a fire, just waiting to toss you in. And I don't think that's the picture of God we see in the Bible. We talked about how last week we need to look at every picture of God through the lens of Jesus. What was Jesus like? How did Jesus look? Does this sound like Jesus? Uh, I sent out in our weekly email this week uh, a video from the Bible Project. I love the Bible Project. They take biblical themes and then put short animations to them. And so essentially it's like a theology class set to a fun animation. And so it's a really fun way to, uh, I think it's a fun way to absorb knowledge about the Bible. After one particularly beautiful video on the nature of God, I was scrolling through the comments on YouTube and I saw where a pastor had commented, didn't talk about God's wrath and anger enough one star. There seems to be a whole contingent of religious people who really want God to be angry because they're really angry. And as we talked about last week, we have a tendency to paint God in our image. God made us in his image, but we tend to start thinking like, man, God acts like me. He's angry at the things that I'm angry at. He's angry at the people I'm angry at. But I think the Bible tells a cohesive story leading to Jesus, and I think it, I think it makes clear that Jesus is not an angry God. And so today, in our series on the nature of God, who is God, we're talking about God is slow to anger. Now, something we have to deal with right off the bat. The Bible presents God as a thinking being and a feeling being. Now, sometimes people struggle with this. They expect God to be 100% rational, like Spock from Star Trek, but with all the powers of the universe. But he's like, Spock, he's just like, that's not logical. That doesn't make it like no emotion, just completely logic. But that's not how the Bible talks about Yahweh, the name of God that's given to us in the Bible. 
Um, it does not talk about Jesus this way. It talks about Yahweh and Jesus weeping, being filled with compassion, being heartbroken, and yes, even getting angry. Now for me growing up, when people had an emotional outburst, I would think, well, they're just not in control of themselves. They're a little bit less mature than me because I control my emotions. And you know, I was really stunted emotionally. Darby laughs because she knows this really well. I'm still stunted emotionally a little bit. I don't have high emotional IQ. Um, I, I tend to not know what I'm feeling or why I'm feeling it, so I just choke it down and pretend I'm not feeling anything. And uh, I had to wrestle with this a little bit. We have a God who feels things. He's not just a God who thinks things. He's a God who feels things. His heart breaks when we do things that hurt other people who love us. His heart breaks when we do something that hurts ourselves. He's a God who feels. God is a relational being, and relational beings have feelings. That doesn't mean God is any less or any less wonderful because he feels. I think it makes him more wonderful. He's not a cosmic robot in the sky, but he's a loving being who feels things even deeper than the most empathetic human. Darby's really good at sensing what other people are feeling. I'm not so good because she always says I'm kind of robotic and I don't really understand feelings my own, let alone other people's. And, you know, somebody starts crying and I'm like, I don't know what to do. You know, like I'll just walk out of the room because I'm uncomfortable. Um, much more than Darby, God has a deep sense of what other people are feeling. When we do see the anger of Yahweh, the anger of Jesus on display in the Bible, it's always the result of a relationship. Now this is critical to understand. He gets mad because of a deep relationship being broken, being damaged, or being threatened. He gets mad because love is being threatened. Anger in itself isn't wrong. If we're angry over love, if we're angry for the right reasons, it can be a good thing. Now, remember what we talked about last week. Jesus is God. He's the most clear picture we have of God and how God operates and uh, what God is like. So did Jesus ever get angry? If so, who did he get angry at and why? That's the first thing we're going to look at here in Matthew 21 verses 12 through 17. It says, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Jesus flipped tables. That's not how I usually think about Jesus, right? Maybe that's not how you think about Jesus. I'm like, oh, he healed people. He was sweet and kind. But Jesus, he flipped some tables. He really made some religious people angry. It may be unthinkable to have a view of a passive Jesus that got angry enough to flip over tables, but that's what real world, real historical life Jesus did. In the parallel account that we see of this in John 2, some scholars say it was a second time that he cleansed out the temple. Some say it was a parallel account with just a little bit more detail. It also says he made a whip and he used it to drive out the animals. So it's like Indiana Jones with a whip in there, whipping animals, tossing over tables. So why was Jesus so upset by this? You're like, okay, they were selling some animals in the temple. You sacrifice animals in the temple. What's the big deal, Jesus? Why was Jesus so angry when he seemed so calm all the time? If, if God is slow to anger, why did this make him so angry? 
Well, Yahweh chose the Jewish people to be a special platform for a special person, Jesus, who was going to restore the relationship between God and humankind. As part of this platform, they were told to build a tabernacle and ultimately a temple to represent the divide between God and mankind. And each year they would bring an animal to sacrifice, a male sheep without blemish as a sign um, that the evil in the world and the evil that we do leads to death. It has consequences. The system was annoying, it was costly, it was a pain, but it was to teach the people to long for a final sacrifice that could fix this problem between God and humanity. We needed a final sacrifice. We needed God himself to lay down his life to bridge the divide between us. Um, in the design of the temple, I think we have a map up here. Perfect. In the design of the temple, God had this area inside the outer walls called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, the, the purpose of this was for non-Jewish people who wanted to encounter Yahweh, the one true God, could come in here and they could pray they could experience the worship to Yahweh, and they could find out about this God. Now, the Jewish people in Second Temple Judaism, the first temple was destroyed, this is the second one that they built, they decided, we don't like Gentiles. Gentiles are the Romans. Romans have conquered us. They control our country. We hate the Romans. We don't want them coming in here and experiencing the one true God. Like, we're happy if they die forever and never know God because we hate them. And so what they said was, we need to do something in this space so there's not a space for these people to come in and encounter God. And here's what they did. They set up a gift shop. They set up a space out here, according to historians, where they would sell temple animals to be sacrificed in there. Now, that's not the only thing going on. Not only did they take up the space that was reserved for the Gentiles, they also, according to historical records, the Jewish priests and religious leaders at this time were also corrupt and obsessed with money. So you would come in with your animal, you traveled from far across the land to make your sacrifice um, in the temple, you bring your lamb in, it's supposed to be a male lamb without blemish, and the priest would look at it and say, oh, this one doesn't have the brand that you bought it in the temple shop. Reject it. And then they'd send you out to the court of the Gentiles and have you buy one at a high price where they were taking a profit. And then you bring that one in and they're like, oh yeah, we can sacrifice this one. This one meets the standards. That's not all. They were also ripping off people by giving loans at really high interest rates. And so the temple had all these extra funds. And as part of that, they were supposed to help the poor and widows and people who needed money. But they were instead ripping off widows who came into the temple and they would give them loans and say, you want to save your land, right? Your husband's dead. You don't have any sons. You're going to lose your property. We'll give you a loan. But it's at a crazy interest rate. And then we're going to ultimately take your property when you can't pay. And so it was incredibly corrupt. They were about making money. They were about excluding people based on race. They were about taking advantage of widows and orphans, especially uh, women and those who didn't have a voice to stand up for themselves. And so why is Jesus so angry? Religious people were excluding people from encountering Yahweh. Religious people were robbing people genuinely looking for God. In fact, every time we see Jesus get angry in the New Testament, it's not with sinners, but with religious leaders who are manipulating people or taking advantage of people. In James 3.1, it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that they who teach will be judged more strictly. 
The person most in danger of angering God this morning in this room is me. Like it's the religious authorities, the religious people who stand up and say, here's how it is. When Yahweh first introduces himself to the Jewish people and makes an agreement with them for them to be his sacred people, he lets them know right off the bat what kind of being he is and what he cares about. Um, and it's, it's an interesting passage because if I were going to introduce God, the concept of God, what would you talk about? You might say, he's all powerful. He's everywhere. He's all knowing. But that's not how God introduces himself to the Jewish people. See, God talks more about his character than he does his strength. In Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the Israelites have left Egypt. They've come out to this mountain, and God says, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to make a promise between you and me that you're going to be my special people. And he said, this is what you need to know about me in verse 6. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh. I'm compassionate and a gracious God. I'm slow to anger. I abound in love and faithfulness. I maintain love to thousands and forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin, and yet I do not leave the guilty unpunished. Now what's interesting about this passage is this is the most quoted verse in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, by the Bible. They constantly go back to this. The Psalms go back to this. The prophets go back to this. And they see, what is God like? He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. The biblical writers constantly circle back to this description of God. They didn't say, Yahweh, Yahweh, angry and eager to throw you into a fire like an insect over the flames. That's not what they said. They said, Yahweh, slow to anger, abounding in love, showing mercy to generations. It says he's compassionate. He feels for us. He is gracious. He gives us good when we don't deserve it. He is slow to anger. It takes a long time to get him angry. They've been ripping off people in the temple for a long time before Jesus came in and kicked over the tables and drove out the enemies. But at the end of the verse, it also explains that he's still a God of justice. He will bring justice to the guilty. In 1 John 4, 8, it says God is love. So, so simple. But I think so many times our concept of God is that God is anger and not God is love. But what the Bible says is God is love. Now, John was one of the last living apostles of Jesus Christ who wrote 1 John, and then he wrote the book of Revelation. And so he had lived longer than any of the other apostles. The rest had been killed for their faith, for their insistence that this Jewish rabbi had come back from the dead. And so John now has had 40 plus years of meditating on who Jesus was and what he was like. And this is what he comes up with in 1 John 4 8. God is love. Love. He's like, you want to know what God is like? God is not anger. God is love. If God were anger, it would make sense that he made people to be angry at. Right? He's like, I'm anger, but I don't have anything to be angry at. I'm going to make some people to be angry at. But if God is love, that means he created people to love. And I think that is what the Bible shows. So do we ever see Yahweh get angry? Yes, we saw Jesus get angry. Um, he is slow to anger, but he is not incapable of anger. Now, that might rub you the wrong way. Like, sometimes when we think about uh, God being a just judge, like, I get a little bit uneasy. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. he's going to judge me? Like, what does that mean? Just like we would call a judge who acquits evil a bad judge, 
we should call God a bad judge if he does not judge. We have a tendency to call God a bad God for talking about judging evil, but really he would be a bad judge if he just let evil go and he never did anything about it. We must always understand God's wrath, God's anger, in context of God's justice. God's wrath is always relational and it's always tied to justice. Justice is doing what's right, doing what's fair, putting things in order. We long for justice. As people, like you see this online, people are like, we need justice in this situation. This is wrong. The reason that we have that inside of us, the reason we long for justice, is because God is a just God. He loves justice, and he made us in his image, in his likeness. And so how do we deal with this fact that God is slow to anger, he's loving, he's abiding in kindness, but there's this tension because he's also referenced as a just judge. And sometimes he does get angry. And uh, so how do we deal with that tension? Um, there's a movie called Instant Family with Mark Wahlberg. Has anybody seen that? Okay, a couple people. I saw it with Darby. And uh, it's a great movie. It's about adoption. Darby and I are adopting, so we watched it, and it's like we were both crying. Um, but there's this part. He, he adopts three kids, and one is a teenage girl, and uh, she starts having some inappropriate texts with somebody at school. And at first he thinks it's another student who's asking for new pictures and stuff, but then he finds out it's a creepy, like, 35-year-old janitor who's, like, hitting on this little 16-year-old girl and asking for inappropriate pictures. And so you see this adopted dad, he gets in his car, and he drives across town, and he goes into the school, and he finds the janitor, and he just starts, like, punching him. And that's the anger that we see God have. It's not the anger of, like, I just am holding you over the flame and can't wait for the moment to burn you. It's the anger of a loving father who sees his daughter being violated and says, I want to protect her. I want to defend her. I want to make sure that she is safe. We live in a world with incredible evil. And sometimes I sit down with friends of mine as we sit here in the comfortable West where we have good laws and we're not constantly bombarded by evil right in front of us. And sometimes we talk about a God who judges anyone as completely alien to us. It makes us feel uneasy. I was talking to somebody uh, a few weeks ago and they were like, I just can't believe in a, in a God who would ever judge anybody. That I think of my friends who lived in Nepal for a while, and uh, in Nepal, it's quite common for a poor farming family who has a 9, 10, 11 year old daughter to sell her into sex trafficking, where she is abused repeatedly day after day for the rest of her life. And sick, evil men run these brothels, and no one takes them to court. There is no law to hold them accountable, and they just sit with their money and in their sick depravity and they think, I've got away with it and no one can stop. And I think, how could a loving God not be just and justice? I think that because God is love, he loves hurting broken people who are being abused by the powerful or by the rich and he will intervene. In Psalm 73, verses 3 through 6, the psalmist says, I looked at the arrogant and I envy them. They have so much prosperity, the wicked people, the people who don't live by the way that God describes. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They don't get sick. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Pride is their necklace. They think they've gotten away with it. 
But at the end of the Psalms, he says, but God will Yahweh is slow to anger, but he's not slow to keep his promises. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some of us think of slowness. Why has God not done anything yet? He's being patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient with people because he wants them to repent. Remember we talked about repent is change your way of thinking. It's going from saying, I know the best way to live my life, to saying, I think God knows the best way to live my life. I think becoming a student of the way that Jesus lived and loved, that Jesus knows what he's talking about, and I need to conform to him. As a loving parent hates the heroine robbing their child of an abundant life, God hates the sin keeping you from enjoying his presence. He says, repent. I don't want you to meet my judgment. I don't want you to see my anger. I want you to change the way that you're thinking. I want you to change the way that you're living and turn to me. I want to rescue you. I want to <coughs> So does God get angry? Yes. God is angry when the people he loves are hurt by the evil in the world. When you are abused, when you're neglected, when people take advantage of you and they use power and control to hurt you, abuse you, when people mock you, God is angry because he loves you. He is moved, but he is patient, waiting, longing for them to repent, longing for them to see that he is good. In Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful that what you do is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone you can. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's anger. For it is written, it is my job to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll keep burning coals on his head. Now, that's not a sign of burning and punishment, but burning coals in a Near Eastern culture was a sign that you were repenting your way of thinking. They would take coals and wrap them in a turban and put them on their head. And they would say, I'm burning out the way that I was thinking. And it was a way to show the community, I'm changing how I was thinking because I was wrong. And what Paul is saying is, by living and loving like Jesus, we'll transform our enemies. And you might think, but they deserve punishment. They've done such horrible things to me. And God says, I've not been ignoring you. I've not been missing it. I've seen it, and I'm angry because I love you. But I'm being patient because I long for them to repent. In verse 21, Paul says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what's our application as we end? I think that we need to change this way of thinking that's so permeated our culture that God is a God who comes from a baseline of anger. And that's not the case. He comes from a baseline of love. Um, I've a few weeks ago, I talked about this, a pastor who starts every day imagining an image of a uh, Jewish carpenter with a beard, and he's been working, and it's Jesus in his mind, and he just imagines Jesus every morning. He starts every morning like this, and Jesus says, I love you. I've loved you deeply. I gave my life for you. I love you. Starting every day with an image of God loving him instead of what we so commonly do. Think of an image of God hating us or being angry with us. 
The second application I think for us is maybe today you need to repent. Maybe there's some things in your life and you're like, you know what? I've been thinking that my way is better than Jesus' way. I've been thinking that the way I do things is better than his way. Maybe today needs to be the day where you say, Lord Jesus, rescue me, save me. I want to become a student of the way that you lived and loved. God may be being patient with you. And finally, I think we should pursue justice because we have a just God, but we need to let God get revenge. Revenge is saying, someone hurt me, I want them to hurt. Isn't that our natural response as human beings? Somebody hurts you and you're like, I just want them to hurt so bad. Like they hurt me so deeply, they need to feel that same thing. Justice is saying these people hurt people and I need to take steps so they don't hurt other people. Justice is on the side with God. Revenge is us jumping in front of God and saying, hey, I'm going to take care of this. Instead of trusting that a good God has not missed it, that he's aware and at the right time he's going to flip some tables. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Because God, as I look at my life, it's not been a life that is worthy of your love, but that's the beauty of your love. You loved us when we didn't love you. We couldn't earn your love. It was freely given. And Lord, I'm so grateful that you have begun a work in my life to make me live and love like you did. God, I'm so thankful that you're a God who is slow to anger because otherwise I would have made you angry a long time ago and you would have destroyed me. But God, there are people in my life who have hurt me and hurt people that I've loved. And God, my natural tendency is I want revenge. I want to see them pay. But I know that's not the way of Jesus. God, I pray that you, I give my vengeance to you. I give my wrath to you. You're the one who is a just judge. You see everything. You know everything. And you know the best way to proceed. And God, I pray that you will turn my enemies to repentance, not to disruption. God, I pray that you will change our way of thinking so that we don't imagine you as an angry God holding us like an insect over the flames, but we imagine you as a loving God spreading out your arms to wrap us in your eternal love. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ would. Amen.